participating. We're continuing our study of the, of the Gospel of John. What a, a rich way of showing us Jesus Christ and seeing his glory. And so today we come to John chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. I imagine if we mention the feeding of the 5,000, almost all of us have heard about that and can tell some of the stories about it. Perhaps if you were raised going to Sunday school, you could remember stories and maybe drawing pictures of the basket of fish and loaves. It's a familiar story, but may God give us the grace to see it anew and fresh. So uh, our text this Lord's Day is John chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. So I encourage you to follow along in your Bible as I read. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Then a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover... A feast of the Jews was near. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes and seeing a great multitude coming toward him. He said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that all these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter, said to him, there's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? Then Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves. When he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, so that nothing is lost. Therefore they gathered it up and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, This is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Well, again, to set the context, John begins by saying, after these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee. After these things. Well, after what things? Well, probably one way to look at that is you most naturally would flip back to the previous chapter, John chapter 5, where he was uh, ministering in Jerusalem. And remember the, the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda and, and the issues that came up about healing and carrying his bedroll on the Sabbath. After these things, Jesus crossed the Sea of Galilee. Now we're told later, a little bit later on, verse 4, that the Passover was near. We were told in chapter 5 that Jesus was there in Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Probably, I would be inclined to think that that was a Passover. So between chapter 5, verse 47, and chapter 6, verse 1, Nearly a year has passed. Um, And so that makes me comfortable because sometimes it takes just about that long for me to get from one verse to another uh, preaching through. But but what that tells us is, you know, John, he made it very clear. I'm not going to tell you everything Jesus said. I'm not going to tell you everything Jesus did. There's not enough room in all the books of the world to cover all that material. 
But John also knows that we have Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so he, can, he wants to focus in on certain things to hammer home his truth. He's not saying those things they record didn't happen. He just said, you have those books. And he's assuming. And John is, the Gospel of John is the last of the Gospels. And so some of the things that go on, for example, the, the kingdom parables of Matthew 13. Um, after these things, two things in particular that the, the other Gospels uh, report for us. And some of you like to take notes, and so I'll just give you the feeding of the 5,000 passages from the, what, where they find them in the other books. In Matthew, it's chapter 14, verses 13 through 21. Matthew 14, 13 through 21. In Mark, it's chapter 6, verses 30 through 44. Mark 6, 30 through 44. In Luke, it's chapter 9, verses 10 through 17. Luke 9, 10 through 17. Now, if you're paying attention, all four Gospels record this account. They tell us different things, and, fill, and they, it's helpful to read those accounts to fill in all the details. But aside from the resurrection of Christ, this is the only miracle in all four gospel accounts. That tells me something. Pay attention. Don't miss this one. This is a biggie. Well, back to those after these things. What we learn from the other gospels is one thing that has just happened is John the Baptist was executed. After a wild feast... Uh, at Herod's palace, it ended with the execution of John the Baptist. We skip over to this chapter and we come to another feast, don't we? A holy feast. We also learned that the gospel, that in the other gospels, that the apostles have gone out. Jesus sent them out throughout the Galilean region, preaching and doing miracles. And frankly... They came back pretty worn out. And Jesus said, come, let's, let's go apart. Let's get some rest. So John leaves us, he skips over a year and says, now, what, but basically what he's telling us, I'm following chronological order, but he skipped over things that the other accounts bring us. And he says, after these things then, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Um, if you, and I always like to think about the map in Israel, and if you think about it, I always like to say, if you look at the map, it's right there on the Mediterranean coast, and up at the top, you see kind of a circle. That's the Sea of Galilee. You follow the Jordan River down, and you see the Dead Sea. There's your geography of Israel. Uh, so he's up by the Sea of Galilee. It's kind of interesting we call it the sea. When, you think of, when I think of the sea, usually I think of the Black Sea or some of these other seas we hear about. Um, it's, you could also call it a lake. It's about 13, at its longest place, it's about 13 miles long and about 7 miles at the widest. Um, compared to Lake Texoma, it's uh, about two-thirds of the, of the area of Lake Tex, uh, Texoma or less. So just to kind of give you perspective, I mean, you, you, you can... Get across it rather readily, and uh, you can go to, today to Israel and take a little boat ride to take basically the same route. 
And you can stop at a little restaurant and have uh, St. Peter's fish, the, the exact same fish that he caught, probably with the same hook. And if you want to believe that, that's just fine. But, but all that to say, that, that it's a real place. It's a, you get a feel for it. It's called the Sea of Galilee because it's in the region of Galilee. And that's probably what it's called in Jesus' day. Uh, it, by about the city of Tiberias was built in A.D. 20, about 10 years before this time. And so it probably hadn't called it that, but eventually it became called the Sea of Tiberias based on the city that's on the west coast. Uh, today in Hebrew, they call it Yam Kinneret, uh, which means uh, the Sea of the Harp. Because if you look at it on a map, it kind of looks like a harp. So, but this is a real place, and the Galilean region is a, a lovely region. And, and Jesus spent a good year and a half of his ministry at this place. Luke tells us that where the event of the feeding miracle happened, it was near Bethsaida. That means house of the fish. Would you like to guess what the primary industry was of Bethsaida? And if you're thinking metal smelting, you're mistaken. (laughs) Um, Bethsaida. Um, Luke 9.10 says, The apostles, when they had returned, told them all that they had done, coming back from their trip, And when he took them and went aside privately into a deserted place belonging to the city called Bethsaida. So it was near Bethsaida. John tells us, by the way, more about this city. If we're paying attention, we've heard of it before. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. These three apostles, who were especially known as fishermen, all came from the house of fish, from, from this fishing village. So um, this area that we're talking about near Bethsaida, uh, one describes it this way. Uh, it was about five, there's a five-mile square area in the, called the Plain of Bethsaida. It's very spacious. It's crisscrossed by streams, aqueducts, irrigation canals, many flat hills on which it would be possible to see large numbers of people. So you get the, here's the city, the little village, Right on the coast, obviously, if it's a fishing village, and there's, we're in a little harbor there. And, but right in the areas, there's some big flat areas and some kind of low, a couple hundred feet and, and, and up, flat hills. Perfect for a picnic. And if you're just looking at your map of the Bible, at the Sea of Galilee on the north, the Jordan River enters right at the north. To the, to, the, to the left, to the west of that is Capernaum, where Jesus lived during his time in Galilee. And on the other side, northeast corner, Bethsaida. Now, moving on. John 6, 2 and 3 say, this, There was a great multitude followed him because they saw signs which he performed on those who were diseased. And so he went up there with his disciples. Why did they come? Why did the crowd come? I think John wants us to notice something. Because they saw his signs which he performed on those who were diseased. Why would they come? Well, because for one thing, I think it's an incredible spectacle. It must have been, you know, it, it would be amazing. You know, these weren't some of the phony things that you'll see so often around. This were genuine, transforming, incurable lepers healed and walking away instead of a desperately con- deformed and, and, and destroyed tissue to baby-like skin. Uh, the, the lame walking, the blind seeing, 
the deaf hearing. It must have been incredible to watch these things and to watch the reactions of people right before your eyes changed, transformed, and exhilarated. So the spectacle, but also many sought him for healing. You know, medicine back then was very primitive. And sometimes it helped and sometimes it hurt. But most of the time it just cost you and there was no real benefit. This was transforming. Um, B.B. Warfield wrote this in the 1800s. When our Lord came down to earth, he drew heaven with him. I like that expression. The signs which accompanied his ministry were but the trailing clouds of glory which he brought from heaven, which is his home. So as he stepped out from heaven, you could, you could smell heaven on him, if you will. And, and with it, the, these miracles were just kind of the aura from heaven he brought. The number of the miracles which he wrought may easily be underrated. It has been said that, in effect, he banished disease and death from Palestine for the three years of his ministry. We ordinarily greatly underestimate his beneficent activity as he went about, as Luke says, doing good. Back in that day, disease and death were the norm. Can you imagine when Jesus would show up on a village and by the time he left, chronic illnesses, recent illnesses, devastating, crippling conditions, gone. Can you imagine what that, after a year and a half of wandering the villages and towns of, of, of Galilee, how amazing that was. Well, here was another event. They'd seen this, and then they say, saw Jesus heading over towards this region by Bethsaida, this kind of an isolated, deserted area. And um, I think some translations call it a desert. It wasn't desert, but deserted. It was not populated. He was heading out for some alone time. And as he uh, was trying, he was followed. And Jesus went up the mount, on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. So he went up one of those little low, flat hills I, I described earlier, and he sat there just to rest. Have you ever maybe been near a little lake or something, or maybe just out over a pasture, and you find a little elevated spot, and you just sit and, and just relax, seeing the beauty and peace all around you? And so Jesus went with his disciples, and and looked out over the Sea of Galilee and just uh, relaxed. Uh, when, when I lived in Israel, I, I liked to go up and travel and, and come up to the Galilean region. And, and, I, and often I said, you know, I can see why Jesus liked this area. It just, there's something peaceful and beautiful about it. So there he sat. And then we're given the time notice in verse 4. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. So that, again, that helps us. Uh, for a couple of reasons. First of all, notice how he says it. Passover, a feast of the Jews. That tells me something about John's audience. It, 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 it certainly includes non-Jews, doesn't it? Now, in other words, if I were writing a letter to a, a Jewish friend and said, now Passover, that's a feast Jews celebrate. You know, I would hear the echo of duh <laughs> coming from that. Well, of course we celebrate that. What are you talking about, Gentile? No, but John is writing, there's some Gentiles, okay, Feast of Passover, that's a, a feast the, the Jews celebrated. So it's helpful to tell us his audience. It includes Gentiles. Uh, but it also helps us track the years. How long was Jesus' ministry? One of the easy ways of doing that is you, you count the Passovers. 
And when you do that, you find his ministry was about three, three and a half years. Because each Passover is another year. It's like maybe uh, sometimes, you know, we, you might uh, count uh, Christmases or Thanksgivings. You know, or maybe you always go on a vacation in 4th of July and so you count them. That was four fourth of Julys ago. A lot of times with, with people with, with children, we'll, we'll kind of count them, you know, based on how old their child was. Let's see. That was the, that was the two-tooth uh, year, you know, whatever it might be. So... Passovers tell us something of the time. It tells us the time of year. Passover was in the spring. Kind of like when we celebrate resurrection, it's always in the spring, isn't it? And we have a Passover Seder the Thursday before Easter. Um, And so the weather would be uh, pleasant. It could be wet, usually not as much, but it would tend to be cooler. 60, 70 degrees in the afternoon, 50s in the morning, not too far off of where our temperature is, which is so kind of nice and cool to be out, and probably a breeze coming off the lake, it would have been lovely. And it was also, when we think of Passover, what was, it's called the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. When they celebrated Passover, they remembered the Exodus from Egypt, but also they ate unleavened bread for a week because... Um, they had to leave in such a hurry, didn't have time to rise. So the whole week you're thinking about bread. And then when they got in the wilderness, remember there was also bread, the bread from heaven, the manna. And so it's a season when people think about bread when he performs this miracle. Well, verse 5 and 6 Then Jesus lifted up his eyes and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he was about to do. So he looks up and he sees the crowd coming. Remember, this is Jesus. This isn't a surprise. Oh, no, here come the people. This was a divine appointment. This was God's plan. But he looks up and, and sees them coming, and imagine the disciples looked over and said, oh, here come the people again. So much for a time of rest. And he um, asks Philip a question, where are we going to bribe food that all these may eat? And of course, commentators wonder, he had 12 disciples, why did he single out Philip? It could be something really profound, Philip was standing next to him. But Philip, if you were paying attention, when I read John chapter 1 earlier, Philip was from Bethsaida, as were Andrew and Peter. But, in other words, he knows the area. You know, if we were to go to an airport and take a quick ride out of the airport in some place in New Mexico, and you said, where are we going to get something to eat? I would say, use your phone. I have no idea. But he knew Bethsaida. He knew the resources. And so he asked him, where are we going to get it? But we see more of the Lord's intention. Now he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Do you remember the principle that we've mentioned several times over the years? When God asks a question, it's not because he needs information. You know, so when God says, um, Adam, where are you? He knows. <laughs> Adam, did you eat of the tree? He knows. He's looking in those cases for, would you confess to me what's going on? When he asks 
Philip, what are we going to do? He knows what he's going to do. But he's, it says, testing Philip. He's making Philip think, we have a need, we have a situation, how are we going to address this situation? And so he's stirring Philip to think about it. Because sometimes, have you ever noticed, we just kind of coast along and don't really think about things. We just kind of, someone else will make those decisions. We'll just uh, coast along. And it'd be easy if you're walking around with Jesus. I'll just, wherever Jesus goes, I'll just follow and I won't think. So he's making him, he wants this to be a growing time for Philip. He says, Philip, how are we going to buy food for all these people? Well, verse 7, Philip answered and said, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may have a little. May have a little. Now, Philip here shows good management skills. Right? He sees the crowd. He does a quick numbering. Now, in the Greek, you can see what it says. He pulled out his iPhone. You know, maybe he could hold up, scan 5,000 plus people. Um, and he, and he's, but he's doing the math in his head. Let's see. 200 denarii. Now, and a denarius is a small coin. Sometimes that's called a penny. But it would be a, the common wage for a, a laborer for a day's labor. So we're talking about nearly two-thirds of a year's wage. Said even if we had two hundred denarii, and that's not saying they had it, but but he's you know, but he's saying even if we had two hundred denarii, you still couldn't feed a crowd like this where that where they'd even get just a little taste. The picture that comes to my mind is that the little fragment they might get. Have you ever noticed when we pass the bread tray at uh, the Lord's Supper? Sometimes there's these little particles in there that you'd have a hard time being able to pick up. He's saying they wouldn't get even that for 200 denarii for such a crowd. So he does his math. Then he, he, he evaluates the resources needed to solve the problem. And uh, he comes up despairing. By the way, it says uh, there were 5,000 men in this text. 5,000 men. And, 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 and there's two different words for men. One means generic. It could be person. This means males. And, and Matthew fills in the details. In Matthew 14, 21, it says, Now those who had eaten were about 5,000 men, besides women and children. So very easily, if every man had a woman and one child with him, and we know there's at least one child, right? That's the guy who's got the little lunch. So there were children along. There were family groups. Not all were families. Some would be single men and some would be with families. There were easily 15,000 people. And he's saying, how are we going to get lunch for 15,000 people? Sometimes you've been driving along on a trip or something. You've got a car full of kids and you look back and how are we going to buy food for all these? Imagine. And so Philip looks at that and he's doing the math and saying, I don't even know where to begin. We don't have the resources to meet this need, Lord. But he missed something. He forgot kind of a a noticeable resource. Jesus. Jesus is there. And that's what Jesus is trying to teach him. If you look at the resources you have in your wallet, 
or in your bank account or on the credit limit of your card. If you know Christ as Savior, that's not all your resources. Um, so I've heard poor Philip. And some of these guys, we're going to have to get to heaven and apologize. He's been called a statistical pessimist. You know, he's a guy that evaluates us. Oh, we can't do this. We don't have the resources. This, this is too big for us. We can't do this thing. Poor Philip. Now we'll get to heaven. He'll probably say, you missed the point. But we'll, get, we'll worry about that then. But he knows about Jesus. He's been with him for a couple of years now. He's watched. Think about the things he's seen. Remember, he was there when the water was turned to wine. Remember they, what happened? They had a need. We ran out of wine. And what happened? Jesus addressed it, and all of a sudden, no need. Because it's not about resources. It's about their resource, the Lord Jesus Christ. Think of, he was there when the widow of Nain, remember when Jesus interrupted the funeral? Coming out of the village of Nain. And the poor widow is just, her, she's a widow. Her husband's gone. Her only child, her only, her only provider has died. And Jesus stops the funeral and raises him. Wow. But Philip was there. He has seen Jesus meet needs beyond resources. Matthew tells us, just to give you some sense of it, Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching in the gospel of the kingdom, healing every sickness and every disease among the people, like uh, Benjamin Warfield I mentioned earlier. He came in and disease was gone. But even chapter 10, verse 1 of Matthew, when Jesus called his 12 disciples, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal all kinds of diseases, all kinds of illnesses. What he's saying is, Philip had himself gone into villages and, and cast out illness. And he's saying, Jesus, we don't have enough money in our bag. Jesus is testing him. He's saying, you see the situation. How are you going to meet the need? And Philip defaults to check the bank account. Look at your human strength, your human ability, your human resources. And frankly, don't we all default to that? I can't do that. Right. That's exactly where you need to be. I've, I've told people at times, sometimes they'll say, I feel like I'm at the end of my rope. I'd say, great. Now you're ready to trust the Lord. You cannot do it. Good. Now you're going to have to look to the Lord to do it. If I can quote a uh, familiar book, God is more than enough. And that's what he's trying to teach Philip. Philip, it's not your strength. It's not your resources. The resource you need to notice is God is with you. Again, so he's like so many of us. When we see our situation sometimes, we see the need and we look at our, what, our resources, whether it's our emotional strength, our physical ability, our financial abilities, and we say, I can't do this. We despair of hope. And we need to be careful. We don't do what Philip's doing. We're leaving God out of the equation. Now, you don't presume upon the Lord, but you don't forget the Lord when you face needs. 
Remember, he is the shepherd who is with you. We, just, we talked about Psalm 23 recently. He is the shepherd, who, and the shepherd's job is to guide you, to provide for you, to protect you. If you're with your shepherd, it's his job to meet the needs on the road on which he's guiding you. If you're in the place where he wants you to be, he will make it happen. And so, notice what he does to Philip. He tests him. Sometimes we find ourselves in difficult circumstances, and I would suggest that we need to view that as an invitation from the Lord to trust him, to look to him for our strength, to look for him for our provision and our resources. As I've thought about this passage and prayed about it over this week of preparation, it's my, I kept thinking about our own church. We have the same problem right here. It's easy to see we're a small congregation, and we're smaller now than we were before COVID. We can count numbers, and we can calculate needs, and there's prudence in that. You'll notice later on, they, they're organized. They'll seat the people in groups and all that. It's organized, counting up the baskets. But if all we do is see the need and count the numbers, we've missed the point. We need to see the need and count the numbers and look to God. And as a church, we need to remember to, to keep God in the formula and trust his provision and guidance. I read recently uh, one of the older preachers, Vance Havner. You may have heard of him. He was, I heard him one time when he was in his 90s, and um, he still had a lot of fire to him. And he, had, he was one of these that had you know, these great one-sentence uh, quips all the time, the kind of things that young preachers steal. One, as I read a comment from him, he said, uh, it's the pastor's job to fill the pulpit. It's the people's job to fill the pew. And we might add into that, and it's the Lord's job to build the church. We all have to do our job and be faithful to it. And I work hard to be faithful to fill the pulpit. And we together should be working hard to, to fill the church. But beware of coming up with programs and plans or despairing. Instead of saying, Lord, what's your will? You provide. When we started this church, I, one of the things I, I did was I spent time reading the pastoral epistles, 1st, 2nd Timothy, and Titus, and reading through the book of Acts. For months, I just, in my personal reading, I just cycled through those. And one of the things that really struck me as I read through the book of Acts, the beginning of the church as it spread, again and again, it, would, it was clear that when, when the church was established, when the church was growing, when things were thriving, there was no human explanation. You had to look at the situation and say, God did it. And I became more and more convinced God wants our church to be the same way. And we've often, over the years, mentioned that, that it's not, we don't want to say, we followed this program. Because, again, I tell you, I get these emails and mails and advertisements all the time. We've got a great program. You do this, and we'll guarantee 23.7% growth over the next two years. And the real question is, not man's planning and not man's programs but God's provision we don't want to say hey 
we followed this program, and that's why we grew. What we want to say is we followed the Lord, and he grew it. Only God can be the answer. And so when we, like I said, see that we are smaller, we could easily despair. Or we can say, okay, Lord, what are you going to do with these fish? We've only got two of them. So don't forget the God of creation in your calculations. I wonder if there should be a button on our calculator, you know, the God factor. Well, let's see about his provision then for the people. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, poor Andrew, we always forget him. And who is he? He's, He's Simon's brother. Some of you went through school like that. Oh, you're so-and-so's brother. Or some of them, it was different. Oh, you're so-and-so's brother. You're going to sit up front. I have to keep my eye on you. Andrew, he's Simon Peter's brother. And he said, here's a lad. I like that. Little boy, literally. Here's Here's a little boy who has five barley loaves and two small fish. But what are they among so many? Now, again, Andrew was one of the fishermen from Bethsaida, the fish town. And so... um. He's offering some help, but really he's showing it's no help at all. So Philip's done the calculating. Here's how much money we would need. Andrew scouted around, and the best he could scrounge up was one little kid with his bag lunch. And he said, How's all we have is five barley loaves. Now, when you think of loaf, you know, you're thinking, think of a, a small pita bread. Uh, think of like biscuits. If you're going to send a child out with a lunch, you're not going to send him five loaves of bread. Five biscuits of barley. Barley was the poor man's food. And I heard, I saw someone commented on that. It's kind of like tortillas. There's corn tortillas and the, the more upper class is the flour tortillas. There was bread of barley. That was the poor man's food. And there was oats. I mean, there was a wheat for the more if you're more prosperous. And the reason I mentioned oats, some of you have heard of Samuel Johnson. He's credited with writing the first English dictionary. It wasn't. But it was the first standardized. It was in the 1700s. He, he put together a dictionary that, that so standardized the English language, it was the standard dictionary of English for 150 years until the Oxford English Dictionary came along and replaced it. Here's what he said about oats. Oats, a grain which in England is generally given to horses, but in Scotland supports the people. Now, personally, I'm offended by that. I eat oatmeal six days a week. Um, His biographers wrote in his response to that comment, I, and that's why England has such fine horses and Scotland such fine people. But his thought was, oats, that's that's horse food. Um. Barb likes to comment sometimes when she eats what some sell as corn. That's cow corn. Because <laughs> her brother raises some wonderfully sweet corn that you can hardly put butter on it, let alone salt. But um, Barley was, what I'm, my point is, this is, this, is the, this is the poorest excuse for a meal. And two little fishes. Think of maybe like pickled sardines. They, know they wouldn't be a couple of big fishes, just... Just enough to make the barley go down. So, no, it's Andrew saying, Lord, this is it. We got one lunch and it's pitiful. 
So as he analyzed the situation, again, he's another, if you will, statistical pessimist. At this point, finally, the Lord kind of speaks to the situation. So then Jesus said, make the people sit down. I like that. He doesn't say, let me explain to you what I'm about to do. I'm going to do a miracle. I'm going to multiply the food. He just says, make the people sit down. And you know what the disciples did? They made the people sit down. The Lord rarely tells you what he's going to do when he tells you to obey. Parents, teachers, have you ever been annoyed by that little three-letter word, why? Have you ever responded with the biblical answer, because I told you? And so he says, make the people sit down. And what did the disciples do? They sat them down. Now, there was much grass in the place. Remember, it's spring. The Galilean and, and much of Israel during the, in the spring after the rainy season, green, green, green. Kind of like Texas right now in many parts. Look around here, it's green. Come back in August, right? Brown, brown, brown. So there was grass in the place, so the men, so it's comfortable. Men sit down, number about 5,000 plus wives and children. Then he took the loaves when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples. The disciples to those sitting down, likewise the fish as much as they wanted. So Jesus said, spread them out. And they did. A crowd of 15,000 people. He took the boys' meal. And what Jesus always does, whenever you see him having a meal, the first thing he does is he gives thanks. And then, uh, you know, some people said, maybe he said the typical prayer. Uh, blessed art thou, Lord our God. Typical Jewish prayer. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread out of the earth. Except, he's not bringing this bread out of the earth. <laughs> maybe, well, I guess you could say that a little barley loaves. And so, when did the miracle happen? It seems to me that as he was breaking the bread, it just kept multiplying. We're not told. But it seems like as he broke it, handed out, broke it, handed out, broke it, handed out. Reminds me, remember, the widow that was, that was poor and the prophet told her, uh, get, bring your oil. Your, your, not, your oil jar is not going to run out until, um, until the famine's over. And so she just, one little jar of oil just kept pouring and pouring and pouring. And so as he kept breaking and breaking the fish and the bread, and, and he gave it to the disciples and the disciples handed it out. By the way, notice, and several have noticed this. What did the disciples do? They took the bread from Jesus and they gave it to the people. Did the disciples multiply the food? Were they the source of the food? No. They received from Jesus and they distributed it to others. You know what? That's a picture of what we're all called to do. We receive from Jesus and we pass it along to others. That's what I'm doing is I'm preaching God's word. It's his word. I'm receiving and I'm passing it on. As we receive Jesus Christ through the gospel, when we come to the place that we recognize that we're a sinner that needs God's forgiveness, we see that Christ died for us in our place on the cross. He paid the penalty of our sin so we wouldn't have to. And we say, Lord, be my savior. Forgive my sin. Here's my life. We receive salvation. And what do we do? We take that. And we pass it along to others. Someone said that a Christian is, is kind of like a beggar telling others, beggars, where he found food. The disciples, what they did, how did they bless the people? They obeyed Jesus and they handed out what God gave them. 
When they were filled, he said to the disciples, gather up the fragments that remain, and so that nothing is lost. Therefore they, they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. So I imagine those were good fishermen's baskets. Now think of five, ba- five biscuits wouldn't even fill that little basket. That basket. Twelve baskets were packed with the food and the fish. Mark tells us, I think, the fish were included. There's no question. This is a miracle. Again, notice, it's not wrong to be organized. The other Gospels tell us they sat down in 50s and 100s. They sat down in an orderly way. The food was distributed in an orderly way. The baskets, notice Jesus said, no waste. Notice, just because God has done a miracle, that doesn't mean you should be wasteful. And I keep reminding myself, to mind of walking through like a, a buffet, like restaurant, like a CC's. Oh, it just kills me. You, you see these little plates full of, of pizza that's just going to get tossed out. And you think, you know, there's parts of the world, that's a village, <laughs> uh, could eat that. Waste. He says, no, don't waste it. Gather it back up. Twelve. But can you imagine the disciples as they brought back 12 baskets came out of this little lunch bag and the Lord's hands. But it, what it tended to do is it, it quantified the evidence. God did a great thing here. It's a miracle without, without dispute. And so actually that, uh, then verse 14, Then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, they said, Truly this is the prophet who is to come into the world. The people saw that. See, they came. And they came hungry. After a while of being there and away from home and not knowing what they would do. Can you imagine parents? They brought kids along and they're hungry. And say, oh, I'm sunny. I'm sorry. And all of a sudden this fish and bread come along and meets their need. And it says they had every man had as much as he wanted to eat. It's not like um, a hold back. There's only one biscuit for the family. You could either give me, would you give me 12 of those, please? It's been a long day. Can I have six fish? And so, so they just filled up and filled up. And still, 12 baskets, everybody saw that and said, wow, this man is from God. He's, a, he's, he's the prophet prophesied, prophesied in De- Deuteronomy 18. Like what Nicodemus came, remember? No one could do the signs you do unless God saw them. They saw it as evidence that Jesus is, God, is giving God's truth. He's a prophet of God. They didn't say he's the Messiah. He didn't say he's God in the flesh, but they recognized he's from God. It's a genuine, indisputable miracle. Now, I won't spend all my time filling you in on on some of the details of how people have tried to dispute this text. All four Gospels recorded, it's clearly an evident that this is something happened in history. I have to tell you the one explanation that, that has gone around, still goes around. My mother told me this is what she was taught in church. The miracle of the 5,000 is all these people came together. Selfishly, every one of them had, had their lunch packed in, their, in their, with them. But they're not going to share. When Jesus ministered to them, then the miracle of sharing happened. And everyone had a giving spirit. Isn't that nice? Literally, people preach that and say, that's what happened. The miracle is he changed the hearts so they want to share. But think about it. How could everybody eat to their full and have 12 baskets left over? What, did they all bring a lunch kit on their back of 
massive. It, that's just people who don't want to say God does miracles. This is a miracle, indisputable, reported in all four Gospels. It struck me, you know, they said, this is, this is truly amazing. I was reminded, thinking of another uh, Jewish holiday, Hanukkah. It's not really a biblical, but it's that your Jewish friends celebrate all the time. You know, they light the little eight candles and celebrate Hanukkah right around the time of Christmas. That's to remember about 165 B.C., the, the Jewish people drove out the Greek oppressors who were uh, forbidding th- their Jewish faith. They beat them. The Maccabees did. They beat them in war. And then when they rededicated the temple, they were going to need to, they, they needed to light up the menorah that's in the temple. But they only had one bottle of oil left. And only sacred oil could be used. So they took that one bottle and they lit the menorah. But it was going to take eight days before, to make true pure oil again. That one bottle lasted for eight days. And they said, that's a miracle. And that's, what they, that's why they light the candle, to remember the miracle of God's provision. And they play a little game with these little tops. Uh, and the letters on the, the tops uh, remind of the Hebrew phrase, there was a great miracle there. For eight days of oil. Compare that to feeding 15,000 and having 12 baskets full left. Now, that was a great miracle. I don't know why we don't have a feast of the 5,000 meal. Maybe we should, an annual meal. Let's, well, maybe we'll, it's around, well we, we do the Seder. It'd be a little busy in our schedule. But, uh, but it was an incredible miracle that pointed to Christ. The little boy's lunch is a great reminder. A lot of Sunday school lessons make it all about the boy who shared. Um. The Lord didn't need that lunch, did he? Could, 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 did you see him scrounging? Guys, if you could find just one biscuit, just one biscuit, I can feed this crowd. He didn't need that. But the Lord chooses to take the little, the inadequate, and use it for his glory. You know what? That's encouraging to me. It means God can use me. It's not basic, because a lot of times we might look at something and say, that's overwhelming. I can't do that. Right. But God can. I don't want you doing it in your strength. The Lord wants us to do it in his strength. So when it's all over, we have to say, to God be the glory. We couldn't have pulled that off. And again, I think of that with this church. That's what God wants to do. To God be the glory. Look what he did. And everybody has to say, Amen. My calculator didn't show that one was going to happen. But the greatest need of all is not feeding a crowd. The biggest need of all is salvation. Our sins are beyond number. Our guilt beyond depth. That's the greatest need we have. And there Jesus makes an infinite provision. He didn't just satisfy us for a week or for a day, for a week or a month. We had an eternal problem. Our sin eternally separating us from God. And Jesus Christ gave himself the perfect Lamb of God as a sacrifice in our place to pay for our guilt, to meet our need. He didn't die on the cross for himself. He died on the cross for us. 
And so the great miracle of God's provision is the cross. It would have been fun to eat that meal with the 5,000, wouldn't it? I think the rest of my life I'd be telling people I was at the best picnic in history. But there's something greater to report. The greatest miracle of all was right in my life when I trusted Jesus Christ as my Savior. And can I be like that, those disciples? I've received that from the Lord. May I share that with you? Do you know Christ as Savior? If you have yet to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, hear his offer. Receive the gift. Trust in Christ as Savior. If you've received that salvation, then you've gotten the handoff from the Lord. Are you sharing that with others? Can you imagine how the Lord would have chewed out those disciples if they took all that bread and just kept stuffing it into their pockets? I didn't give it to you to stuff away. Give it out. And that's the calling in each and every one of God's children. May we be faithful. Father, thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for inviting us to to be witnesses to this meal, to see your hand, to see your might, to give you the glory. And Father, I do pray that in each of our lives, the testimony will be not by my strength, by your, but your glory, Father. May that be true in each of our families. Not us, Lord, but your glory made this family what it is. May that be true for us as a church. Father, may we be a light of glory to the, to the communities around us. Not by our strength, by, by, but for your glory and by your might. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.